Hello, everybody. I'm uh, joined here today through Zoom with uh, my coach, Brandon Chin from Kaizen Lab Jiu-Jitsu. Brandon, welcome. Thanks, man. Thanks for having me on, Brad. Um, no problem. I couldn't let Luke beat me out, especially if this, this podcast really, really takes off. You know, I've got to be in it to win it. <laughs> what do you mean by beat you out? Oh, well, you know, Luke was saying like, you know, it becomes really popular. He wants to be first on, up first, first in. So, you know, I was like, oh, I totally agree. You know, when this really takes off and this podcast becomes massive, um, I'm in it. <laughs> I don't know about that. I think we'll just have a little bit of fun with the podcast and see how it goes. But um, Luke, unfortunately for him, is not the head coach of Kaizen Lab. So I have a feeling <laughs> we'll get double the views that his will. Luke, with all due respect. <laughs> oh, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> I don't know about that, man. I think you'll find, well, from my experience, whenever you have uh, the coach of a gym on, all of the students at that gym seem to tune in. So I'd imagine that we'll have a heap of people from Kaizen. When I had James on from Sustainable Jiu-Jitsu, we had a heap of people from his gym tune in. And previously on a previous podcast that I was doing in Sydney, whenever John came on, it would get double the views of any other episode. So, Okay. All right. Well, hopefully I've got something uh, interesting to say then. Uh, I'm sure you will. So I guess how, if we get straight into it, how did you kick off with martial arts in general? It doesn't have to be jujitsu, just early as a child or where did it begin? Uh, no, actually. So I didn't, I mean, I had some dabbling in Taekwondo. So I was, I was born in Singapore and I came to Perth when we were, I was around um, eight, nine years old. And in Singapore, when I was around five years old, I dabbled for about a month in Taekwondo, but because of the, the way school works over there, um, there wasn't really much time to do any extra curricular sports. So that didn't last very long. Hence why I dabbled in it for a month, um, which again, wasn't very long. I, I barely remember it. Um, all I remember is just late nights and trying to do kicks that I could never do. And then sort of that fizzled out quickly. Yeah. But really I started um, with, uh, Chinese Kung Fu, so kickbox, Chinese kickboxing. Um, and I was 17 and I had just finished high school um, and started university. And so, yeah, just a, a friend introduced me to it and they brought me to an old uh, retiree guy, right? And basically he's, he came from overseas to Perth to retire and the family friend convinced him to teach a few people. And so um, one of the family friends was a good friend of mine and she actually introduced me to him. And that's actually how I got my start in martial arts. True. So were you, um, was it sort of like a seed being planted from when you were a child and it was sort of always there bubbling in the background and then you came across it again through your friend or had you completely forgotten yeah, about yeah. martial arts and then he reintroduced No, no. Um, I, I really, I really loved everything about martial arts. Um, I guess, just like a lot of people I was um, brought into with all the romanticized movies of martial arts, you know, with um, good versus evil and uh, a lot of Bruce Lee. But actually, uh, who I really, really enjoyed watching was um, Jet Li. So Jet Li and Jackie Chan were some of my favorite uh, movie stars. And so that really brought me into um, love of martial arts. And so I, I, I kept seeking it out, uh, but really to no avail during high school. Um, I always wanted to do it, but I never had the opportunity until I finished high school. And, and, and uh, then I got to really indulge myself in it, uh, you know, 
So that's hence why after, when I was started in university, then I had a bit more time and I really mm-hmm. got myself um, stuck into uh, Chinese Kung Fu. So that yeah, was great. It was great. It was, um, it was a really, really great teacher. He's still my mentor today. Um, and uh, yeah, we, I was training with him for a good 10 years. Um, and he was the one that actually encouraged me to go out and uh, wrestle. So at that time, there was not much wrestling to be had. So he himself had learned a bit of Mongolian wrestling back overseas. And he said, you know, because of my body shape and size and how, how quite, you know, quite large I am, he said, you should try to wrestle. And so I was looking around. There wasn't really anything around that I could easily find. Um, and chanced upon a mate wanting to drag us into his house to train because he had something called like Gracie Jiu-Jitsu and he had some tapes and stuff. And so um, he was like, oh, any friends want to come around? And, and he's happy to show us stuff. And we were like, okay, we have no idea what it meant. But yeah, so he, basically we went to his place and got dragged into it. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that your um, well, Chinese Kung Fu and your coach, you say coach, how would you refer to him? Oh, well, I mean, you know, in Chinese, it's Sifu. It's just a master. So he was technically a master of the arts. Um, sure. And uh, that's, that's how we refer to him. But he's, he's like family to me. So he's like a, a granddad to my kids and uh, a great mentor as well. Yeah, so in life, I guess. Through my formative years. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, definitely. Mentored me through formative years. Sounds like an open-minded person because correct me if I'm wrong, I would, I would have thought that someone in his position might not necessarily uh, be wanting to tell you to do something like wrestling, wrestling. Usually in the traditional arts, it can be very like, this is what we do. Um, I've heard of people being kicked out of gyms for wanting to try other arts. Yeah, yeah. I, I've, I've asked him that over the years as well because so, I was quite surprised um, how open-minded he was. And he... We, you know, we've had many conversations about this and he said to me that um, throughout the ages, there's always been two schools of thought, the type that are very close-minded and the type that are very open-minded. Mm. And that's not a new thing. So a lot of people think that's a new thing for cross-training, MMA, but what it is, it's just been brought more to the mainstream. So he himself and his master and his grandmaster before that were all very open-minded people. And so... Uh, I was, I guess, in, in such a way fortunate then to be brought into that school of thought. Um, mm. All of them cross-trained. So they were all introduced to many masters of many arts. Um, all of them wrestled. Um, all of them did stand-up striking. So they already had, I guess, a very rudimentary, what, you know, back then, what they call MMA. But it, it was very rudimentary. A lot of them were still um, predominantly specialist in, a, in, in either a stand-up or in a grappling art. So... I don't know. It just seems like people think that's such a new concept, but it's not. Mm. Um, and I was just lucky that he himself was very open-minded and then he encouraged me and hence why I feel that I'm pretty open-minded to different martial arts. Yeah. Well, even as a um, student yourself and as a coach of our gym, I know, I notice that there's a bunch of people who train at other gyms. Max, for example, does gladiator wrestling. So there's one person not to mention. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I think that yep, shows. Yep. Uh, Christian, judo. Uh, actually, a couple of the guys were from judo backgrounds. Mm. Um, I really encouraged Max to wrestle, freestyle wrestling, just because um, I said to him, look, if you really want to take your, your uh, jits and your, and your um, you know, just martial arts to the next level, um, I highly recommend wrestling. I find that it's more 
efficient. You know, it seems like such a hard sport. It is, but um, it's far more efficient in terms of takedowns. You know, if you want to get someone to the ground, it just it's just such a great, uh, you know, um, teaching you different angles, uh, efficient use of leverage. Um, I find judo, it's changed a lot over the years, and it's become very, very um, almost Greco style, but with a jacket. You know, you're not allowed to grab legs anymore. So it's evolved. Whereas wrestling, I feel that it's still got that um, holistic view of, you know, you can just do everything. You can control from the neck and head, uh, body all the way down. Uh, sure, it doesn't have any submissions, but that's okay. BJJ covers that. Mm, we blend that in and try and make them blend together seamlessly, really. That's the direction yeah, exactly. that submission grappling is going, I think, at the moment. Um, so... Yeah, definitely. Without getting too far off track, I was going to go uh, talk about. Well, you mentioned sorry, you mentioned the Gracie Jiu Jitsu tapes with your mate in his house. How did that go down? <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Very interesting. So, um, you know, we're all good mates. Walked into his place, and he he uh, proceeds to um, uh, take us to this special room that he had decked out with mats, right? And we're looking at this going. Oh dear, we don't know what the hell we've got ourselves into, right? It's like first time we've seen a room decked out with mats. He's got this grappling, old old school grappling dummy in the corner with a gi on it, um, <laughs> you know, belt tied on and everything. And we had, no, we had no idea what to expect, you know. Um, funny enough, uh, who introduced me to it was Chris. So Chris Tan, you know, from yep. the club. He's he's the one that dragged me to my um, our mate Mike's place, and so we walked in. And he's like, okay, all right, uh, let's let's you know spar a little bit, and then we'll introduce like takedowns to the ground, and we're like, oh, okay, I don't know what that means. I don't even know what the word takedown meant, mm. and uh, so we we're sparring, so we're stand up striking, and you know we put on gloves and we're going at it, and then he he goes, okay, I've had enough of this, so he goes in, clinches, and then takes you down, and so I I lie on the ground, I literally lie on the ground, like arms and legs just completely like flat and just looking up at it. He's mounted me, right? And I'm looking at him and going, oh, great, what now? <laughs> so he looks down at me and goes, oh, don't worry. Rolls me over, chokes me out. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like gurgling and, uh, you know, uh, I pull his arm off and he goes, oh, yeah, so that's a choke. And then he's just like, just proceeds to just keep clinching, take down and just like mount. And none of us knew what to do, right? We're literally lying on the floor looking up at him. And then after uh, you know a few rounds he then okay goes and shows us some techniques so that yeah. that was my introduction introduction sorry to uh gracie jiu-jitsu back then and uh, how did apparently you... he had sorry. sorry sorry go ahead i was going to say how, how did you feel about it at that point did you think okay this is an effective art jiu-jitsu in general or were you think or you're still skeptical no 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 i i thought it was great because at that time uh, i mentioned i was looking around for a, a wrestling art that and I couldn't find any. And this happened to be purely coincidence and timing that I got then shown what this crazy jujitsu was. And I thought, oh, so I asked him, is this, is this like wrestling? And he goes, yeah, it's, kind of, it's grappling. It's a similar sort of subset. And, you know, so he tries to explain it to me and um, shows me some techniques. And I thought, oh, that's great. It sounds like it will really complement um, what I already have in terms of stand-up. And I think this was what my... Um, Chinese Kung Fu master was trying to encourage me to do. Mm. So I was like, oh, great, perfect. You know, I, um, you know, I was 
of poor uni student. I, I didn't know any better. Uh, back then, internet wasn't a big thing. So he literally had to send away for these tapes to California. And, you know, it was mail ordered. It was all VHS. Um, and he learned off it. Uh, he was he was really smart. So he learned off the Gracie Jiu-Jitsu tapes on the grappling dummy. And then he would then use us to then try to refine some of the movements. And so then we would learn as well. So mm-hmm. it was just really interesting. Um, so that was my very short introduction to um, uh, uh, jiu-jitsu. jiu-jitsu. At, what, what, top, uh, what year do you think this was roughly, at a guess? It would have been 90, uh, 92. Far out. So there would have oh, been... Oh, no, hang on. No, no, not 92, sorry. Uh, let's see. I, sorry, 90, 95. Yeah. Around 95, 96, yeah. That's early yep. stages here, eh? Do you think there was any jiu-jitsu going around at that point in time in Perth? Um, yeah, I, I think there already was. I think um, the what's now known as the... Well, actually, I don't know if it was called something else, but Academy of Mixed Martial Arts, I think Adam Metcalf already had a small gym going. Um, I think there was a Jason Gotch down in Vic Park. And... Uh, I think there were only like three or four in total. And I think um, also what's now known as the Mission Factory, that was also already running at that time. So it just, just started. I think they were not even bluebell. I think they were like white three, four tip or something like that. Mm. I've read a lot of, um, well, I've heard a lot of people talk about it saying that you'd see a couple of blue belts, but purple belts were completely uh, like a mythical creature at that point in time. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, the highest belt rank, I think, in, in Perth at that time was a blue. And I think, I think Jason Gotch was a blue belt, if, I, if I'm not wrong. So I, 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 I could have been wrong, but this is what I've tried to piece together from you know, a lot of information, uh, talking to friends after a while. Mm. Yeah. So did you, after seeing those VH, uh, VHS tapes with your friends, did you start at that point, you started doing jiu-jitsu or did you find an academy and join one? Or what was the sort of time frame from... Uh, actually making a committed start i think it was a few months after that that um i then sort of made a committed start um to it um it yeah it it wasn't i guess it wasn't straight away i was just enjoying it because it was with friends it was a very social thing that we enjoyed and shared Mm. and i didn't really take it seriously um until a little bit later so maybe could have been maybe six months of just dabbling, mucking around at his place and then sort of, um, yeah, made a start at that time. And I actually started out with a gym in Big Park, but then I had moved to what's now known as the Mission Factory up after about two, three months. Okay. In yeah. Wang- Wangara, right? In Wangara, that's right. So I used to live all the way down south. I used to live in Cannyville and I would drive up to Wangara um, about – three, four times a week to go and train. Mm, there you go. So if yeah. you want to do jiu-jitsu, there's no excuses for not being able to make the commitment. If you're, tra- if you're traveling from Canning Vale to Wangara to learn, you can make yeah. it happen. So how, well, what, I guess nowadays it's a bit different. You have so right. many there's more options. More yeah. yeah. Get something close yeah, to home. Definitely. So how, yeah, how did your... Sorry, it's a bit hard with the slight lag. I had the same issue in all the recent ones. I hope it's not too bad for the viewers or listeners, I should say. Uh, so how, 
when you started jujitsu at Submission Factory, how did that go for you early on? Like, what were the early challenges and just the general progression? Well, back then it wasn't called Submission Factory. It was um, it was by some other name, right? And uh, it was owned by uh, someone else. It wasn't Troy and Stacy who um, who owned it only a little bit later. And the challenge was that it was traditional jujitsu, half traditional jujitsu, half BJJ. So what had happened was the original owner and instructor was from Melbourne and he taught, so basically it was one hour of traditional jiu-jitsu. So we would run through like a lot of standing techniques, punching, kicking, combined with uh, clinch work and throws. Um, and then some randery, which is traditional jiu-jitsu style. Um, you know, you get grabbed by multiple opponents different ways and you have to then perform the technique. And then the next hour would be like groundwork, like BJJ style groundwork. So we practice the guard, basic and fundamental guard sweeps and, and arm bars. Um, because, and John would come down, John Will would visit like four or five times a year to try and impart more of this BJJ um, to like the Perth sort of affiliates. Mm. So it was actually quite interesting because we had to learn a huge syllabus. Like uh, traditional jiu-jitsu itself has quite a large syllabus of techniques. And so we had to learn that. And we had to learn BJJ. And that was one session. That was two hours um, and half and half. So it was, it was very interesting. And then obviously after a while, it's sort of uh, that traditional jiu-jitsu stuff um, got phased out and then went more like pure BJJ. Mm. Um, and by that time, this, this instructor had gone back to Melbourne after about uh, a year. When I was there, sorry, after about a year, he, he left. And, and then Troy and Stacey uh, bought over the, the club and then obviously renamed it to uh, what is now known as a mission factory. And then it was just pure BJJ then. There you go. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. That's some good history to have on that. Cause I didn't know that. And I think a lot of people may not have either. Um, so how, tell me a little bit about your just experience coming up the ranks, like through the belts, if you've had any challenges along the way or just any memorable moments, whether it's competition or um, trying to recover from injuries, just anything really, whatever comes to mind. Um, starting out as a white belt, it was really, really challenging and trying to piece things together because you can learn the technique and you learn, say, an armbar. That's fine. You know, you can try and rep repeat the armbar, but then trying to piece it together yourself and trying to then learn how to free roll is a completely different problem or set of problems. Um, and back then, um, obviously, with the highest belt being blue belt and the rest of us trying to um, come up behind them there was no clear way of going from a white belt just learning a couple of separate techniques to then developing a game it wasn't there wasn't really an a concept or progression or planning associated to developing a game um, so we chanced just literally chanced upon it like we would try a couple of moves and we could do it with any sort of competency, we would just try to randomly pull it off in the role if we remember it while being crushed by someone probably more senior than us. So, you know, if we were going against, uh, and, and I remember this, I, I kept getting tapped out by, um, back then was uh, my coach's um, girlfriend. And she was, you know, like 15, 20 kilos lighter than me. And she would just be like, oh, God back take choke and I'd just be all over the place just being tapped everywhere and um, just not knowing what the hell was going on like 
holy crap, oh, what is this position? And next thing you know, I'm like choking to death or like arms being pulled or, you know, so it was quite rough. Um, I remember just a lot of injuries. Um, and then obviously having to learn to, oh, maybe I should tap earlier, right? It's mm-hmm. like, um, it was a very different mindset because everyone was like, no, 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 got to be tough, got to be tough, got to try and tough it out. Mm-hmm. So we're all like, yep, tough, 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 injury, tough, tough, tough it out, injury. Yeah, so that wasn't a great time. But eventually, those of us, those of us that survived kind of um, got a better understanding of, okay, we should tap early, we should do this to prevent injury, we should do certain things. Um, you know, and then we, then we developed portions of the game to keep us safe. Um, and escapes was one of the first things that we all um, learned. So defense, learning good defense was important to keep yourself safe so that we can keep uh, free rolling. If not, the free roll will last very, very uh, short time. Mm. So that's interesting. It sounds to me like nothing's changed in jiu-jitsu at all. <laughs> no, <I'm joking>. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. No, I'm joking. Um, I think the philosophy ha- has changed a little bit in terms of now it's people think about longevity and um, training smart. You hear coaches like everywhere I've trained, at every gym I've ever gone into, um, the coaches are sort of talking about you know, staying safe, not being stupid, looking after each other's limbs, all that sort of stuff. Maybe, maybe that wasn't as much of an imminent thought when you first started. That's probably more modern than anything else. Mm. Um, <laughs> I don't think that came into people's mindsets until a lot later in the in sort of Australian BJJ. And I think it's for the better because um, you want to be able to train in martial arts, keep yourself healthy for a lot for a long time. And without those core principles of safety, um, you can't get past the initial hurdles where a lot of the injuries occur. So the first six months um, of me starting BJJ, um, I just had so many niggling little injuries, um, ribs, neck, um, elbows, ankles. Um, now, why ankles is because one of my coaches was actually a, a, a savage leg locker. So uh, we wouldn't know any leg locks. We barely knew any defenses to it. But man, he loved to foot lock and leg lock. So our knee bar, we were getting knee barred all the time, foot locked. Um, and yeah, that wasn't pleasant. Wasn't pleasant at all. So as as you came up, came up in your, I guess in your progression, how how did you make adjustments to that sort of stuff? Like for oh, well, what do you mean adjustments to like all the leg stuff? Well, I guess I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking more along the lines of, I guess I'm skipping too far ahead to where we are now. Like in our gym now, obviously you teach that sort of stuff and we teach that you- we learn the defenses and the escapes and safety's not a, um, like no one is, no one is concerned in the gym about getting hurt. Obviously you need to be smart, but no one's worried that someone's going to tear their leg off because there's a certain amount of um, care that we all have for one another. I think that comes more from training methodology. So um, back then, obviously, you know, I said that the highest belts were only just in front of us in terms of knowledge and skills. And so how we trained was very rudimentary. It would be, here's the technique. So we'd actually do the technique in isolation and then immediately try to go in the hole. So you can imagine that going in the hole when you're introducing a huge amount of pressure and aliveness all of a sudden, even though it is constrained to a certain game outcome, say, for example, uh, a good example is like, you know, when you do in the hole for guard passing, if you Mm. pass the guard, you stop and you reset. Mm. But if you'd only just learned 
to move with very little um, aliveness and you learn it uh, just by following a process. You know, step one, I push the leg down. Step two, I take my leg up. And then you get thrown into an in-the-hole drill. Um, the chance of success is actually really, really low. So it took a lot longer for us to understand how to apply some of those skills in a, a live situation. So with leg locks, imagine the complexity around that. We'd learn leg locks and the defense in isolation, right? And then trying to then perform the defense or offense to it, um, especially if someone is more senior, more um, with better timing, more clued in, it's very, very difficult to do so, right? Because there's no bridge. Whereas now I think we do a lot more bridging skills where you maybe specific training, you're taking that skill, you're trying to incorporate into a into something slightly more alive. And then from there, you know, there's maybe one or two progressions before you do a, here's just a general in the hole, good luck, right? Mm. Um, I think we do a lot more things in between to get you get, to get people there as opposed to you just learn the technique and you get thrown in. And, and, and very similar that. to how, yeah, exactly. Very similar to how the uh, stand-up used to be taught as well. You go punch and you hit the bag, you do some techniques, and then you go spar. And, and there's a huge gap. There's a huge gap between those two situations, mm. which people now are a lot smarter at progressing or bridging that gap. I think a good example is a lot of how we train at Kaizen. How we'll st- I like, well, in particular, how we start close to the submission where they have it fully locked on and then you, or you move away from it or you start at distance. Sometimes you do both by starting at distance and then getting the transitions and slowly building up to that point. Yeah, I, I really like that as well. Not sure um, how, I'm not sure how to, to explain that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? No, no, so there's two... Yeah, yeah. There's two different ways, right? Specific training that um, we, I picked up from um, two or three different people over the years was uh, obviously like John Will, and he learned some of those skills from the Machado brothers. And Machado brothers, because they cross-trained a lot, um, they took a lot of skills and training methodologies from wrestling, judo, sambo, and then they incorporated it into their jiu-jitsu. So a lot of that's filtered down from the Machado brothers. And uh, one of the similar methodologies of what you're mentioning is called the perfect storm methodology, where you're trying to get everything in the right spot, the perfect storm, right? E- everything's in the right place at, and in the right angles, and then you just perform it. You try to get the person to resist, but you're already in that perfect position, mm. and executing it is then a lot easier. Um, and then the other way was when uh, Lachlan Giles came in, and showed us how he's been bringing his guys up um, in terms of specific training. So he goes and does perfect storm and then does it backwards as well. So he goes, starts in the perfect position, have your partner resist, but because you're in the perfect situation, it's more than likely that eight out of 10 times you will execute that move. Mm. And when you execute that move a few times in a repeatable fashion, you then take one step back from that and you make it one step more difficult to achieving that outcome. So now it's not perfect anymore, but you've t- t- just taken one step to then have to get to the perfect storm to execute the move. And then you can just backtrack. So you're doing chess backwards. You're going from that checkmate, and then you're moving one piece back each time to get there. And then what that teaches you is, again, that bridging methodology of getting you from where you are to where you want to be 
and it teaches you how to go from all those all roads lead to Rome sort of thinking. Mm, that's, um, I think that's a, a really good way to do it because a lot of people who start out at the beginning, they might have, when they go live, they have a lot of experience where they might, let's say 100% is a submission and 1% is where we start. They might get from 1 to 60 but not be able to get all the way to 100 Whereas if you're starting at say 95 and they have to just, then they can focus on the real minute details of getting a clean finish as opposed to getting to 60 and then trying to jump to a hundred and forcing or rushing or, or executing without the mechanic or the details that they really need to make it efficient. So it's a good way to sort of, yeah. So I, I found that that's a great, one of the great ways that we train at Kaizen. And I, I like that way. Um, so yeah yeah I, I i i yeah no i i i think that i mean there's no there's no silver bullet there's no perfect way but i think having a couple of these approaches really helps um i myself when i first started my first year and probably a, a year and a few months so it's quite a long time if you think about it right over a year i have never choked anyone like in a role um even just practice like couldn't get the mechanics of a choke mm. um even with my seniors and my coaches trying to help me i just couldn't choke anyone right um i'm not sure whether it was the methodology or the technique itself or maybe i just didn't understand how to do a choke back then but it took me a long time about a year and a half nearly two years before i started to understand chokes so previous to that i've probably been free rolling and all i could really get was figure fours and armbars. Mm. Like I hadn't choked anyone, not even a rear naked choke in a year and a half thereabouts. Right. Yeah. So uh, it's a long time and you spend so much effort in free rolls trying to get to dominant positions. By the time you get there, um, let, let's say you need to get to back control. You might get to back control in like one out of 20 rolls because as a white belt, you might be wrestling against seniors. And back then, you know, BJJ wasn't huge. So, we didn't have a lot of people. I was probably the nail for a very, very long time. Um, and so, yeah, by the time you get to like a decent position, you're like, oh, well, what do I do now? You go, no <laughs> idea, right? Whereas maybe the perfect storm methodology, you get to practice and then work your way back to go, oh, oh, well, I didn't realize that you can go from back control from like a mount position and then that's, that's where the choke was. So, yeah, who knows? Who knows? Have to figure it out. Yeah. yeah. So how? Right. So how did um, the jujitsu scene in Perth sort of evolve? Uh, like around sort of, I guess your progression. You said there wasn't many. There was only blue belts, white belts. White belts were very close behind coming up. How? What sort of involvement did you see in the community and just jujitsu in general when we get sort of black belt gyms and more gyms opening and students growing and all that sort of stuff? Um. Yeah, I guess the community was really, really small. But because it was really, really small, um, the three or four gyms that were open at that time were struggling to um, get people to... to um, like, there was a problem with retention, right? BJJ itself has a problem with retention in the sport. It's a very difficult, complex art. And it just doesn't sit with a lot of people. And so retention in the sport is difficult. Um, you put that into a very, very small um, pool of people and 
there was a lot of, I guess, politics in that, you know, you, you couldn't cross train. Cross training was definitely no, no. Um, and each gym was trying to outdo each other to, in terms of competitions to try and show that they were better. Um, and because that was a way to attract people because the people that we would get were, I guess, a lot more hardcore or they were more advanced martial artists looking to then uh, all make their game more all round, you know, from uh, just like a lot of us, we were all starting from a striking stand-up base. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wanted to uh, round out our martial arts skill, whether some of them were watching UFC or not, it doesn't matter. They all wanted to round out their game. So we were attracting, we were trying to attract martial artists. So established martial artists. Um, whereas nowadays, I think the sports are a bit different where people have seen the benefits of jiu-jitsu. UFC is a lot more mainstream. And so people are starting their journey with jiu-jitsu. Whereas back then, it wasn't usually the start of someone's martial arts journey. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it was just difficult. It was difficult. It wasn't, there wasn't very much cross-training at all. So what, what, how, when did you notice the Perth scene sort of explode a little bit? And sort of now there's, there's heaps of gyms. I think there was one that opened recently in Butler. And I mean, not sure how they're handling everything with the coronavirus and even yourself. But I guess before we get to the coronavirus, even speaking about that, how did you see the landscape of jiu-jitsu evolve here? Um, there were competitions still. I mean, back then there were still competitions um, run by the heads of the clubs. Uh, and, you know, that was the only time we sort of got a chance to um, try out different training methodology so each club had their you know head coaches and the head coaches would, would train in a different way concentrating on different skills so the competitions were good fun i really enjoyed competitions i went into just about every single one of them that i could get my hands on they were mm. about three or four a year um and i think as as time went on i guess it just slowly got more and more popularity as people got to hear more about um what this Brazilian jiu-jitsu thing was all about um, it was quite an organic growth. There, I don't think it was, um, there was no support from the state or government organizations or anything. So I would say it's quite organic growth. Um, mm-hmm. As the population got bigger or, and or um, BJJ got more um, word of mouth. Um, and then obviously when UFC became more mainstream, um, all of that added to the growth of the sport here. And hence maybe now more gyms to try and um, service the demand, right? So people want something to train uh, that's more local, that's easy for them to get to, um, but that's, that's because there's more people wanting that. So, mm. yeah, uh, I guess it's really hard to say because of the organic growth, it wasn't like there was a huge surge in popularity. It was, we're talking about more than 15 years ago now, easily. Mm. I've been training for about, what, 19 years? So, yeah. I mean, it was always, uh, and also BJJ comps as well, had a lot of the judo practitioners come and compete. So the judo guys used to come and um, actually compete in BJJ comps as well. So, I mean, the comps weren't massive. Like, I think I remember my division used to have only two or three people. Um, Probably the biggest division, and still is, is around the 70, 75 kilo mark. They used to have like six. That was the biggest division, right? Yeah. So it wasn't, they weren't huge comps. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that just shows the development of it, uh, of how things go really. Um, so how, 
how, at what point did you start seeing like progression in your games? Like not just um, the game coming together, but belts as well and all that sort of stuff. Probably after about a year, a year of training. Um, again, I'm not, I'm not sure if giving a duration is fair because we were all very, um, the training methodology was quite, quite rudimentary. We were doing our best and we we're doing it through pure hard work, trying to break through barriers. Mm. Whereas I think it's different now. So duration maybe is a little bit different, but for me, after about a year of training, um, I really started to see my game evolve and, and, and develop to actually even have a game, right? To actually say, yes, I have a game. So, um, I had a, um, specific set of moves and a flow that I really, um, understood, enjoyed and saw a lot of success from. Hence, I took that and it's um, been part of my game. Even now, I still have that game, um, embedded and I've been trying, obviously refining it since I was a white belt, but, mm. Um, it probably took a long time, a lot longer than most people, um, probably about a year. And then after about a year and a half, I actually started specializing in chokes. Um, after completely not being able to do it, that actually <laughs> became my specialty when I was like a blue belt on the bump. So, um, yeah, it's funny how things work out. <laughs> and so how about going, th- how about, uh, your transition through purple, brown and black? Did you have any like major roadblocks or highlights at those points in time? Um, I would say that, okay, I mean, white to blue was difficult, but I think with a lot of the comps that I was entering that helped me improve, um, from blue to purple, the difficulty was very similar to when you first start as a white belt. Um, when you first start out, you again, you're learning these single moves and then trying to incorporate it into uh, free movement, right? And so that was a difficult jump. Blue to purple was very similar to that. Yeah, you had these moves that you could do now, right? You could armbar people, you could figure four people, you can do all these things, you can mount people, but they're all sort of sitting disparately. And as, as you're trying to go to purple belt, you're trying to pull them into clusters where they make sense, like mini games, where, you know, you could go to mount and in mount you might have the ability to do these two or three things but you have to chain them together and i think that's what's really difficult um because as a blue belt you've got a standard skill set but there's still one hit wonders you know you're you can do one sweep from god yeah you hit it and then you get to another position and that one next one position you try one thing it will fail you'd have to stop reset try again another thing there's no chaining and so trying to chain things together was as awkward as when you were back in a white belt mm-hmm. trying to learn a game so that was the i felt the most difficult thing blue to purple is that change of mindset of flow and and chaining things together and clustering mini games um and uh also i, I a lot of that blue to purple I saw a lot of my peers and friends drop off. Um, they just couldn't make that transition. They worked really, really hard, all of us did, to get to blue. And then they sort of, as they tried to get past that blue, well, what they call blue belt blues now is mm. they tried to get past the blue belt towards purple belt. And they couldn't then take the next step in conceptual understanding to cluster, chain, 
and provide that new flow to take that next step in their game. So mm. um, I found that to be hard because then all of your training partners or your training buddies start to drop off. And now you are not a white belt. Sorry, did you freeze on me? <laughs> Help you, drill with you, train with you in that way. Yeah, that makes sense. I think the that blue to purple, that conversation, that's a similar conversation to what we've had at times about mine in many ways. About my game, I should say, what I'm trying how, to. How, yeah. How Sorry. So? How so? Uh, just talking about um, uh, linking things together and having the, the flow through positions. Like we were talking, remember I was talking about the mount stuff I've been working yep. on recently. And yep. when they go the Americana side, I've got options. When they go the Kimura side of the arm, I'm kind of stuck. And you're like, oh, well, how about we try this? And then give, you give me the next step and then I can have something to play with, something to work on, something to get past that little block. I think that's exactly the sort yeah. of thing we're talking about now. Yeah. Trying to get think, that... Um, I think one of the pitfalls, I guess, going from blue to purple, um, which I've seen is people tend to want to throw out their blue belt game. And um, I think that might actually set people back further between the progression between blue to purple. There's nothing wrong with a, the blue belt game, but I reckon what people um, should think about is just trying to take a couple of their favorite moves and looking at the transitions between the two moves as opposed to throwing the, you know, throwing the baby out of the bathwater, right? You're throwing out your old game just to create a new game that has a preset set of clusters or chains that um, maybe you've seen it like a black belt's pulled it off in a comp or something. It looks really cool. Um, uh, a good example would be um, if you get to mount, you know, you've got people know that they've got a cross collar from the mount and they also know that they've got an armbar. But what people don't spend time on is the transition between the two of those items. Um, and that's really where the sense of study comes in. It's how does your body need to move between the two submissions? Uh, th that's just an example. It could be submissions, could be sweets, could be anything. Mm -hmm. But it's um, the, you know, the one, two, three years or say however long you're, you're between blue and purple is, is making your body move and transition between the um the two items and that's actually what is missing right so so chaining things together is actually the tra micro transitions between what uh these items if that yeah. makes sense yeah no that makes sense i think that, that'll make sense to anyone who's sort of been training for a while maybe not the white belts as much if they're early on but yeah <laughs> It makes sense. I think they're just trying to figure out how to get from one position to the next. Well, at least I was when I first started, and I, and I still am in some respects. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think all of us are. Like, all of us are just trying to get from one place to another. Yeah. But I think at the black belt level versus the white belt level, it's just um, the moves just are smaller. Like, we're just looking for these smaller transitions. White belts are going from, like, side control to mount. Mm. Black belts are looking from, like, mount this foot is going to be different. This foot angle or hip angle is going to be different. So it's just a transition. Yes. But at a smaller microscopic level. Yeah. So how do you, how do you focus on things like that at your stage now? Are you, um, is it concepts or is it all just feeling and you just, your body just kind of feels it and knows what it's looking for to get the right angles to have their alignment out and yours in, or what are you, what are you thinking? 
or feeling? What is it? Um, well, I, it's 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 a bit of both. So you know, I hate to break it to everyone, but if you ask any black belt, it, black belts still feel like white belts. It, it's still a constant learning. So you don't get like your black belt and suddenly feel better about it. It's still a, such a long road ahead of you. Um, but what I look for in my training is um, nuance. What is someone doing that's making it better, tighter, more efficient, more effective? I mean, what, what is it? Um, it could be an angle change, could be a pressure change. Could, there's all these factors that you can try because they're just variables, right? So you're just putting all these variables in and you're pressure testing it. And it's not one size fits all because everyone's body type is different. Hence the millions of variables that you can place on a one technique because someone might show like some uh, big name, like could be, you know, a, a, a Gracie or a, it could be a Machado. Someone does it in a certain way. Mm. It might not work for you, but it's a hell of a good start because they've taken a hypothesis and they've done experiments against it and boom, they've got something that's effective. Now that's a great start. Why, why reinvent the wheel? Just like any science experiment, you just try to, take re and, and reuse some of that material to say, okay, well, what is, what is the assumption that they've made? How can I make it work for me now? And then play okay, with it so, from there. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Okay. Something to think about. I was, how about, um, I guess I'm trying to move through your progression and for whatever reason in this podcast, I'm doing it from your belt perspective. I don't know why, but, <laughs> keep that going so what, what was it so you talked about blue to purple how about um your brown belt what were the what were the uh, key things that you felt like you needed to either work on or what were the things that you sort of noticed in that period of time to get to your brown that's uh, a good point actually um and, i must say being purple belt was that was my favorite belt it was the most fun um because you're, you know enough to have fun and actually enjoy jiu-jitsu, I feel, at Purple Belt. Um, and you, the, the world's your oyster. You know, you've, you've got enough knowledge that you can take on different techniques, different understandings of concepts and start to really dig into it. Um, moving from purple to brown, that's, that wasn't an easy... Hell, I don't even remember exactly what that transition was like. It was... Um, it was difficult, very, very difficult because what I understood back then of what makes a brown belt was you had to start leading the fight. And I, I believe that now, even at this stage when I'm, um, when I, when I'm grading people, it's like, what makes a brown belt? It's, can they lead the fight? That means not just a purely offensive game, not purely reactive game, but you need to be able to bring people down the garden path to then, you know, submit them or do whatever you want to them, sweep them, you know. Um, and so I, I don't know exactly when that mental change came um, because my game has always been very top, very pressure, very offensive. But then I now needed to be able to take someone down um, in terms of leaning them down the path, right? So I, I'm not exactly sure. I don't remember exactly where that transition came in. Mm. Um, but it's definitely a mental shift to go from purple to brown um, to now, again, it's quite a heavy belt, 
brown belt is, is such a heavy belt. Purple, I feel it's still very whimsical, very fun. Um, you know, you can travel the world, have a shitload of fun with a purple belt. Uh, oh, as a purple belt, sorry. Um, but then brown, there's expectations now. There's um, You had to have certain level of knowledge and depth to your game. Um, and I'm not sure when. Like, I have been teaching, though, since I was a blue belt or just mm-hmm. before blue belt. Um, I was already teaching. So I think that helped me to get better at my research ability um, and self-awareness of where I wanted to be as a brown belt. I think that really helped. So I, I'd already been teaching for a long time before that. Um, so yeah, maybe that helped. Okay. When you said with teaching, was that early or well, early on as a blue belt, was that something that you figured like, I want to have my own gym at some point or were you sort of just given the opportunity and thought, Hey, why not? So how, how did the um, progression it, evolve to even getting to Kaizen starting that out? Okay. Um, big question. That's a big question. Um, so what happened was because I was traveling such a long distance each time, um, you know, I could only make it up to sub factory like three or four times a week. And that itself was, you know, that's a fair trick. Mm. Um, and I wanted to train more. So I, I you know, ev- as everyone does, everyone loves jujitsu. By the time you get to blue purple, you're like, man, jujitsu is freaking awesome. Right. So I want to spend more time doing it. So what I did was I started teaching um, a few guys out of my house in Canningville. And um, that was when I just got my blue belt. So what that did was it forced me to improve my ability to uh, pass on information. I had to really pay attention to details of moves because if I didn't understand it myself, I couldn't really pass it on. Mm. Um, and then also it took me outside of myself. So, um, I had learned through high school sports and state sports that when you coach, it increases your understanding of strategy and tactics. You actually understand the game, not just the techniques itself. You, you look at it more holistically, you step back and you actually see the overall game for what it is. So that gives you more self-awareness. So I think that's what I meant was by doing so and teaching for a little while, by the time I got to brown, I understood a little bit more about what type of brown belt I wanted to be. Um, from, from, I guess, teaching people in my house, then also as I improved, I also helped out at my coaches club. So, you know, I took a couple of classes here and there, helped them out where, where they needed um, nothing, nothing regular, um, nothing too, uh, too crazy, but just helped out where, where they needed assistance. Um, obviously also helping out low belts, you know, if they were coming in, um, white belts needed help, you know, we, we jump in and give them some assistance, um, and show them some stuff as well. So, um, it wasn't until maybe I was probably purple or brown that I, I started helping out more and more at the, at the, uh, my coaches club. Mm. Okay, yeah. there you go. And so what, at what point did you sort of feel like, um, well, the idea of your own academy, how did, how did that seed sort of come about? And then I guess you pull the trigger and have a go at it. Well, I've always enjoyed teaching. Um, I've always <laughs> enjoyed coaching um, because it really gave me a sense of accomplishment when I saw people improve. And also um, it helped my game when, back when I was a low belt. It, it helped me to understand, as I mentioned before, uh, a little bit more about concepts, details, strategy, tactics, the overall 
the whole kit and caboodle of, of what BJJ was about. And also then um, training methodology. So methodology is not something that most people think about. It is a step progression of learning. Um, could be anything. Uh, could be anything from project management. Could be BJJ. Could be judo. There's always a method to the madness, right? You've got to figure out a way to get from A to B. Mm-hmm. Um, you're not born with it, so you have to figure out what those steps are. So uh, that learning of methodology, that that's what I really enjoyed. Um, in starting my own gym, I guess it wasn't until a lot later, um, after uh, Dorothy and I had kids, and you know, I was, I was teaching a few people in my garage. And I thought, well, no, I, I want to create something, something a little bit um, bigger that's outside of myself, that's uh, something that we can call, you know, home that we can build and um, have certain pillars that are really important to me. Um, one of the first, first, I guess there were three pillars that I, and I thought a lot about this. It took me a long time to come up with this. Mm. Um, it was, Culture, culture was first. Then it was uh, community, right? So what are we doing um, for ourselves, our family? Uh, so different spheres of influence of communities, right? Like uh, you start with yourself, then you've got your family, then you've got your household and fam- uh, wider, wider community, neighbors. You know, what, what are you doing? So it's, it's it, culture, community, and then um, the, the people, so what type of people are we taking in? Um, how are we bettering ourselves? Uh, so that's, those were the three pillars that I built. I wanted to build a club on. Um, culture is an interesting one. It's, it's not a tangible, initially it's not tangible, but culture is about the uh, practices, the code of conduct, the, the, um, how people hold themselves on the mat, uh, off the mat, Right, all, all of this is uh, very important to me. Right, mm. um, how we interact with each other. So all that's culture. So yeah, culture, community, people. Those are the three pillars that were really, really important to me. And uh, then I presented it to some to the guys in my carriage, and we were talking, going, you know, I want to do this. Um, do I have your support? You know, should we should we branch out? Should we um, let's have something that we can call ourselves? At uh, this time, we had no name, had no name for it. Um, and, and so it took me a little while to then come up with a name, um, which suited the methodology and training ethos that I had. Um, and then, yeah, then we, we went out and hired a small little studio to, to start, um, teaching out of just cause it was really difficult having more people in my garage. It, was a, it wasn't a huge garage and, mm. you know, Cody, who's like six foot, um, 600 feet sometimes. That's how, yeah. how tall I nine foot is. six, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. He, you know, when he would roll, uh, no one else could roll because like his feet would touch, like his head and feet would like take up the whole width of my garage. So, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't really make sense. So we, that's why we went and hired a small place to, to build, start teaching at. Okay. And I saw, I noticed, um, all the things you're talking about, you mentioned improvement earlier. And that's funny. Cause I looked up, uh, when I was first joining Kaizen, I looked, looked up Kai, or Kaizen and I was like, what does that even mean? And then I realized Japanese word for improve or improvement or self-improvement or something along those words. Yeah. Um, so Kaizen was taken from a very corporate, it's coined by Toyota. Um, 
back way when it was uh, their methodology for improvement. It was continuous improvement. Yeah. So small, continuous improvement. And through my, um, I guess, purple, brown, and then black um, progressions, that was how I improved. I, I looked to improve 1% each time I stepped on the mats because I felt that it was such a big, um, overwhelming journey in front of me, right, that I wasn't even sure I was going to cover it. So I said to myself, I'm just going to take it one step at a time. So that was how that sort of methodology of 1%, like when I step on the mats, what, what am I going to get from this? What am I going to do? Um, I'm going to, you know, uh, could be from God. I'm just going to be able to arm drag someone. Cool. I got it. Cool. That's, that's my improvement. That could be the whole session. I, I, you know, I'm doing stuff. I'm, I'm, you know, having a bit of fun doing, but then what's that one cent improvement I'm going to get? Like, um, I could be, all right, I'm going to get a smoother shot from my takedown or something, you know, like it's just a small thing because the journey in front of you is so huge. Mm. I've never encompassed, uh, encountered such a overwhelming martial art in terms of its complexity and depth and, and, and uh, just broadness of, of techniques. So how, how do you take something down like that? It's, it's huge. Mm. So 1% each time. It's funny you mentioned that at your purple, brown and black, that's how you felt because I, from my experience early on, you have nothing. And so you learn like the basic moves and you can start to move around a little bit and get a few different submissions. Like you get, you get gains quickly early. So the first year or two, you, you go from nothing to having some stuff and it's noticeable improvement along the way. And then sort of when I, I've noticed since I've been digging deeper into my blue belt, it's kind of like slower gains. And I'd imagine the further I go, it's going to be even more minute. And this is what you're talking about where that continuous improvement and then things like resilience and just 1% better every day and having that kind of positive mentality to keep you going all like, you know, 19 years sort of thing like yourself. That, that's right. Um, you know, I mean, it's the same with life, right? Life's going to throw curveballs at you and it's going to be difficult. You don't know what's ahead of you. Right. And um, yeah, exactly. Right. COVID. <laughs> Who <laughs> yeah. would have guessed? Right? So all you can do is just really um, like jujitsu is so, so good for teaching people resilience because it's so massive. You can't learn it all. You're not going to suddenly after a year of training, get a black belt, you know um, it's, it's so big and you learn to take these small wins and celebrate these small milestones and, and you get used to that. And so you chip away at things. And by the time you turn around after a little while, you turn around and look back behind you, you go, wow, look at how far I've come. Mm. But because everyone looks forward and goes, damn, it's so big. They get really disheartened and it's such a difficult thing. And I think that's one of the problems, again, associated to the lack of retention in, in BJJ as a sport is People try to keep the rate of improvement and keep the definition of what a, uh, an improvement or a win is constantly from white belt to wherever they stop. And it's not possible. It, as you said, right, you get huge gains because, again, you're starting as a newbie. You don't know anything. You're going to get massive jumps in knowledge, but then it starts to slow down. And that's normal for any, any sport you do. If you want to be good at it, it's a uh, 1% improvement by the time you get to black belt, right? 
Yeah, well, exactly. And I, I spoke, and then even further than that, that's just sort of from an internal perspective as well. I remember speaking to Luke when we did, I think that was the first, second episode we released, and Luke was saying one of the struggles he had early on was how he was comparing himself to other people. And and that goes from all angles, because I've done that in the past. You have people coming up who maybe, you know, you've got your blue belt, they might have a couple of stripes on their white belt, and then they submit you, or they or they might even overtake you in in terms of belt rankings and stuff. And that can be, I guess that can be something that disheartens some people. So they, I guess the advice there would be to only focus on your own journey and not worry too much about what's going on around you because that's just a part of life, right? People are going to progress quicker, pick things up faster. I don't know. Do you have yeah. any advice outside of that for anyone in that position? Well, it's easier to say, right? It's easy to say, don't compare, but all of us did yeah. it. Uh, I did it, you know, and, and it does, it's very disheartening, but um, jujitsu is like a language um, or music really. And, how do you um, how do you compare yourself um, when you're learning it? Are you doing enough that you're enjoying it? And I think that's the key thing is just being able to enjoy something, get to a competent level that you're enjoying it. Just like music and language, you can put it to use. Um, and I think that's the best way because the more you use it, uh, you will find improvements and you will improve no matter what you just can't compare the rate of improvement because there is nothing really tangible or metric. There's no metric associated to an improvement. Mm. Even the belts, when, when a coach's grade um, or professors, you know, whatever, whatever, if you're, you know, Brazilian, it's, it's professor, right? Sure. So um, when you, when you give out belts, there is a subjective measure as well. It's, there's no hard measure, right? So a lot of it's subjective and, and it's all based on uh, personal development. So I don't think you can really compare yourself to someone else. I think it's probably just best to speak to your instructor. And if they can't give you guidance, there's, there's probably something wrong um, because times have changed and they should be able to give you guidance to it. Uh, back when we were coming up the ranks, it's a little bit different because, you know, we were all trying to, push each other up together, but now it's, it's a bit different and there should be a lot more guidance available to that. Mm. I think that's, I think that's really good advice and not, not even things like having um, training partners in the gym that you get along with really well, who might have knowledge in areas of jujitsu that you don't or that you're lacking or they have something you really like. And these days you can ask almost anyone anything and they'll, they'll tell you what they know if you ask them for it. Exactly. I mean, if you don't ask, um, people can't read your mind. So if you, if you don't um, ask, especially if you don't know, ask your coach. That's what they're there for. Like, I want people to ask me lots of questions. I'm there for them. And, and my job as a coach is not to just give them a technique. I mean, internet, you can jump on YouTube now and try to learn 1 million techniques, right? It, it's insane. But mm. as a coach, I feel the value is actually more about a, um, finding the best training for you, the methodology, um, the progression, the guidance, the direction, the training partners that suit your game the best, um, uh, risk management, injury management, uh, strength and conditioning advice. Um, there's literally so many other aspects to becoming a martial artist, especially in BJJ or grappling art, 
than the technique. The technique itself is a means to an end. Like if you came to me and said, I want to win a competition. Well, that's different. You should be training this way. You should be doing that. You should be eating this. You should be um, training with these people. And this is the sessions you need to go to. So it's, that's what a coach, I, that's what I feel a head coach has to have going on and planning and, and looking after their, their um, students. Um, that's, what, that's what it's all about. And, and I learned that through not, not only martial arts, like my, my Chinese martial arts master, he taught me a lot about that, but also mentoring from, um, I had a really great uh, volleyball coach in high school and also uh, a state volleyball coach as well. And so they knew, they were all part of the AIS and you know they're all part of that knowledge base. And so they actually taught us what it meant on learning about us becoming an athlete. And I think that has carried over to martial arts where um, it's not just, oh, I've injured myself. Oh, I'll just suck it up. I'm just gonna keep training on injury. No, remediation, um, correct therapy, build yourself up from base, smart training, adaptation, then isolation training, building back in. Okay, this is how you get to be game worthy again. You know, so, so all of that is what a coach should bring to the table for their students. But if you don't ask, they're assuming that you're fine because mm-hmm. you don't want any engagement, right? So it's all about the engagement. I try to engage as much as I can with my students, as many of them as possible. Um, but it's, it's all, it also, it's a two-way street. They've got to ask as well for me to go give. Mm. I know if I've had this similar thing when I was injured, we were talking about coming back, like just sort of getting that stage of sort of, okay, now you need to start doing some weights some neck exercises, all these sorts of things that we start easing into roles and or easing into classes, then testing how it goes, maybe go in the hole, see how it feels, then flow to a role. Makes sense feeling better now. So I guess it, it helped in that respect. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And you can come back stronger than ever, I'm sure. Let's hope. Um, so that's a, that must be, I think that's a big part of your game too, the fitness and just the health and um, injury prevention, things like that. Because I noticed that at class ends, you always doing something. And I guess, would you oh, attest uh, that? Like maintenance. Yeah. You make maintenance type stuff. Yeah, you're always on the foam rollers or you're always stretching or you're always doing some work with the bands or just something. Would What sort of importance would you say that has had for the longevity of the 19 years you've had and even your age now with your jiu-jitsu? How do you think that's helped? Well, you know, obviously it wasn't always that way. Um, but as I became less stupid, um, <laughs> I, I learned, to, <laughs> learned to look after myself a little bit better. Um, you know, as, as a young martial artist, you're, you think you're invincible and you tend not to put um, any, um, you tend not to, you know, commit resources to maintenance programs. But as I've gotten older and I've gotten a little bit smarter with training, um, I've put a huge amount of my training time um, into maintenance programs. So um, after training, um, and you've probably seen this, you know, I, I do a proper cool down. So I, I run laps. So aerobic activity helps to push all the lactic acid. So I'm not so sore the next day. So I do a proper cool down. Then I'm onto the foam rollers. So really, really um, opening up those um, tight areas, uh, all that fascia that gets tight, just just opening that back up again, using um, uh, lacrosse balls as well to get into um, more specific areas. And then weighted stretches. So weighted stretches, I, I, um, I fell in love with them. 
when I started my um, adult gymnastics program. So I've, 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 um, I use an adult gymnastics program or uh, it's called um, Gymnastic Bodies, right? And I got put onto that from Tim Ferriss. So I listened to Tim Ferriss' podcast and um, he had Coach Summers come on. And since then, um, you know, I've, I've really um, taken it on board, a lot of that training uh, methodology, and it's really transferred amazingly over to my jiu-jitsu. Like, um, if you guys haven't heard of it yet, jump on Tim Ferriss and Coach Summers, S-O-M-M-E-R-S, and it will blow your mind. It absolutely blew my mind because previous to that, uh, about, say, eight, nine years ago, I was injured. Uh, every part of me was tight. Um, not working correctly, lack of uh, um, mobilization, everything. And I was trying stuff. Like I've tried yoga, Pilates, uh, weight, strength, and conditioning. I've tried different programs from rugby. Try- and I used to have back pain, shoulder pains, everything. I was broken. And um, I, I had enough. So I changed my diet. Um, I got into this gymnastics program, increased my range of motion and uh, overall um chain my body muscle chains all working correctly um i got a good physio he helped to provide a lot of that diagnosis and correction remediation programs um i just all these things you just learn no one's going to give it to you but Mm. obviously with you guys with um you know all members if you ask me i can guide you through that because i've been broken and i've come back from it and i'm probably stronger where i am now than when I was first black belt in, at 30, when I was 30 years old, right? So I'm 42 now, and I'm stronger, way stronger than I was. I would kill my old 30-year-old self. Mm. That speaks volumes. Uh, and have you? can you maybe, at the moment, with all the stuff that's going on with COVID, we've got our closed group doing some exercise drills and things like that. And I know Higher Jiu-Jitsu is doing that, and James has told me his academy is doing that. I, I, most academies are putting out free content and doing things for their members. Is that something that you're going to introduce any of those sorts of exercises for us to follow along with? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of, um, a lot of the members don't realize they're already doing some of that. So, um, for example, when we do our bear walking, crab, um, gorilla walking, all of these are very basic mobilization exercises, which I've learned, um, from not jujitsu, right. From the gymnastics programs, from other, mm. uh, from the physio, from everywhere. And, um, I, put it in because it had such a good uh it was it's so beneficial that i wanted everyone to do it and you don't need to do a lot of it it's very very small things and you just make it part of your routine and it it just it just helps Mm -hmm. Um, i found that what that has translated to was a significant drop in injury rates now there are injuries that i um i'm unable to control so what's outside of my control is that within the first three months of anyone starting jujitsu, there's going to be a slight rib injury. So it's not the rib bone itself, but the intercostal muscles. So that is consistent. Every single white belt that I have seen, taught, um, helped in my coaches club, whatever, within the first three months, you're going to get a rib sprain. So that is outside of my control because what happens is when you're white belt, you, you're doing drills or you're moving along, you get tired. And when you relax, and that time when you relax, when pressure is applied to your chest cavity through side control, knee right, anything, that causes a strain on your, on your intercostals and rib areas. And so 
you can't help it. It's, it's pure chance in that when you relax and that pressure is applied in that same time, coincidentally, you get this injury. So things like that, there's a couple that's outside of my range of control, but majority of time it's like, well, tight hammies, tight hips, tight shoulders. You can change all of that through good warm-ups, good cool-downs, uh, range of exercises, mm. um, and how we train in jiu-jitsu as well. So, for example, um, how we do our hip bump sweep, for example. Um, people with bad shoulders, you can change the angle where you point your fingers backwards, um, how you rotate your shoulder back uh, before you lift your hips. You can do all of those things to manage um, lack of range of motion, and then you can slowly improve on it. But there are just couple of things you just can't can't control like the rib stuff mm. so what, what can a um what could a white belt so someone walks in the door tomorrow they sign up what can they expect in their first few weeks or months at kaizen or just even in general in jiu-jitsu in general if you want to relate it to kaizen feel free well i guess a lot of what worries people when they walk and, and this is what worried me as well when i first walked through the door of a, a, a club or gym was it's intimidating because a you don't know anyone there potentially right if you come with a friend that's great you know someone but you don't know anyone you don't know what the etiquette is you don't know what the codes of conduct you don't know um what you're in for at all so i think one of the biggest things that that relates to then is that the person is now under stress without even doing anything physical so their body is already hitting fight or flight mode um, and their muscles are already tense. And so when you place pressure on that body, it's, there's more chance of injury. So the first thing that we want people to do is be relaxed, get them introduced slowly, explain to them, this is what you're, this is what you're in for. You know, we go through a warm up, we go through a technique, but don't worry, you know, it's, it's all self paced. You know, we talk them through it because that is what a good induction is. So, having a good induction relaxes them, shows them a sense of structure that we, we've we already planned a class. I mean, all the coaches and my assistant coaches, are all we've planned the classes around all this thinking. So we're just explaining it. That's all. That's an induction, right? Relax them. They get on the mats. Cool. There's people there that can help, seniors such as yourself, Brad, you know. Um, there's people there that we can buddy them up with to then assist them through routines that are completely foreign to them. So now they're relaxed, but they're just doing exercise now. So that's okay. And we always want to make sure the intensity is paced to their capability. Mm-hmm. Um, that's basically what, what we try to do because it's the anxiety that causes injuries and, and leads to accidents where you see a lot of white belts spazzing, right? Now, hopefully that can be reduced by keeping people in a relaxed state so they didn't know it's not a fight or flight mode sort of scenario it's them just trying to figure out this movement just like if they're going to aerobics class nothing too stressful and then as they progress then yeah okay up the intensity then you know they're going to be less likely to be injured yeah i think i i remember when i first started training um same thing walking in the doors a little bit intimidating it was a small class though so i found that was um less um pressure on me I remember speaking to Max on the podcast, which is going to come out on Monday with Max and Pat. And Max was saying in the podcast that when he first started, there was lots of people in the class and he would have found that more intimidating because more people to watch him, I guess, where I felt like if, um, if there's less people in the class, then, then I don't, yeah, then that's more intimidating. 
having less people because then you've got more eyes directed on you because there's only five other people, one new person, not you know thirty people and one new person. So you don't you don't blend in That's as much. Um, but I, yeah, I exactly. would I would say, and this is advice that I'd like to give to people who might be coming into the gym and starting and going through the sort of ropes that you've just discussed, is that when you do hit the mats and those movements do feel really awkward and they and you just struggle and you probably feel like an idiot trying to do the stuff that you can't do. There's no pressure. There really isn't. And the other people in the gym, they might see you, but no one's judging. No one cares. Everyone did went through the same thing. They started and they didn't know. So however you're feeling is probably how they felt. And it's, yeah, people are focused on right. what they're doing more than what on you're doing, more than what on you are doing. So don't worry. Just focus on yourself. Focus on your movements. Try and learn what your coach is teaching you. That would yeah, be I my think, advice. I think, it, I think that's really good advice. Um, I think also that, when people are stressed, they don't tend to then pay attention to what is being taught. So the more relaxed you can get someone, the more retentive, uh, sorry, the better they retain information mm. um, because they're relaxed and they can absorb, absorb what's presented to them. Um, I think you can't really, um, everyone's different. So some people like having a big class to blend into. Some people like having a small class to feel um, they have more face time or guidance through it. Um, it's very hard to find that happy medium. And what I found has worked well is um, buddying up um, new people with, with someone that can help them show the ropes. Mm. Um, I think that's, that's really, really helpful, especially in a new, foreign, scary, overwhelming environment um, that helps to get people uh, feeling more comfortable. And that's in, in terms of... Um, you know, I spoke about three pillars that what we're all uh, what uh, we're all about at Kaizen Lab is that um, the second one was community, right? So community is not just uh, you know you running a, a fundraiser for the the local sporting club or something like that. It's um, these people coming to your club are part of your community or will be part of your community, and what you're doing is you're just extending the helping hand now instead of waiting. Uh, whereas you know probably in the old mindset old school mindset back back way when I, when i first started it was like oh man we don't care we're gonna just smash this person because we don't know if they're gonna stick around anyway so we're just gonna take what we want from them and hurt them and if they survive that well then they're tough and they deserve to stay so that's a very old school mentality and what it did was it turned potential great training partners away um by just having that real odd macho style thinking mm. right yeah i think that's an important and that's a change that that's probably one of the changes in jiu-jitsu as a whole as well that it's more um i think so it's more digestible for everyone i i, I think so but i think you know you, you again you get a range of different club cultures and um True. it's not it's not surprising to to uh, it wouldn't be surprising for me to find clubs like that i mean it's not it's not unheard of. It's, it's common, actually. So that was a very common sen uh, sentiment back, back when I first started, and it's probably still out there. Um, but I guess coming back to that community thing, you know, you, you were saying, like, all this online stuff. We, we, for us, that is our community. I mean, uh, that's really important for me um, and, and Dorothy as well, is that we want and we love everyone, all the members, that is... That is our community. Why wouldn't we want to do it? We just, 
obviously, you know, there's only so many hours in a day and this COVID stuff has, I guess, pushed us to have to do something electronically online instead of in person because for us, we love going down to the club. It's everyone's sanctuary. You know, you come after work, you, you, you de-stress, but now we don't have that. So how, how do you do that? Well, the least I can do is, you know, creating a Facebook group and we can go in there, we can post stuff that still interests us. Um, I can still share the workouts that I'm doing, even though I don't have anyone to actually provide a online lesson to, but I don't think you need that. I don't think anyone needs more techniques. I think it's just kind of cool to just share, like, this is what workout I'm doing, you know, have some fun stuff like mm. that 28 day challenge that we're doing that just came out from a bit of a lark, but I thought, well, why not? I'm just going to share anyway what I'm doing to keep fit because by the time we come out of this, I want to be fitter. Again, 1% each time. I want to be strong. I want to be fit. I want to be um, lean, ready to be back on the mats. Mm. You know, um, again, community is very important for us and, and, and all our members make up our community whom we all love. And it is for, you talk about the community and that's so true because I think it's, it's like a third home. And I've no John. Ta- John has spoken about that previously. About everyone needs a third place because most people have have home and they have a job, or they have home and they have university, or whatever it is. And then that third place is an important thing to have in your life. And it could be. It doesn't have to be jujitsu. It could be footy. It could be cricket. It could be jujitsu. It could be swimming. Whatever it is. Whatever your interests are. If you don't have a third place, it's a little bit difficult. And now, obviously, with COVID, a lot of people like you guys have lost your community in terms of the business side of things. And it's obviously a struggle with finances and, you know, we can touch on that sort of stuff and how it's impacted you guys, but everyone else who's a part of our community and all the other gyms around Australia have lost like their third home to go to where they do de-stress, like you said, and they have a lot of like mo- most of my friends these days are either at Kaizen or higher jujitsu outside of my close group of friends that I have in real life. That's where the rest of my friends are. And, it's, and, and can't um, see I think, yeah, that's, that, that's a great way to put it. Um, a third place to call home, right? Um, the, the gym or training area, um, uh, has always been, yeah, my, 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 my place that is, again, it's a sanctuary. Um, that's not, well, not work. It's outside of work. Um, it's not home. It's somewhere where you can enjoy an activity. You don't have to think about anything else. And it's like, it's, it's like meditation, right? It's, it's, you're doing something. You're just letting your mind just only focus on that. There's nothing else. You're not worried about what you're going to be doing in an hour or what, you know, it's just that mindfulness. Um, but you're doing something that I guess keeps you fit, strong, you're learning self-defense. So it ticks all these boxes, right? Um, I get really bored. Like I go to the gym, um, like if it's available, but only to do stuff that I like maintenance plans, um, you know, rolling out a little bit of fitness and strength to do my jujitsu, right? It's, it's not, it's not because I like going to the gym. Gym is boring. Like I would want, I, I look at a dumbbell going, man, I could choke that out. What if I did this on it? Like foot locking, you know, Oh, look at that medicine ball, man. I wonder if I can squeeze it until it pops, right? How hard would it be? You know, it's, so it's like, I'm thinking jujitsu. Yeah. So, uh, but it's important, right? Third place to, to just call home. I think that's a great way to put it. Yeah. So how, how are you guys going with um, all the COVID stuff and what was the sort of process that you went through in order to have to close when you did? 
Oh, past couple of weeks, I think, have been pretty tough. Um, mm-hmm. You know, we, I think it's been tough on everyone. Uh, for us, we had to go through a lot of planning. So um, I don't know if anyone knows, but I, I, I work, you know, so I still work. I've got, I'm, I'm a, a technology consultant. Um, but what this has done is it's doubled my workload because um, because COVID hit and, and some of the mandated um, or rather government recommendations coming down. So Dorothy and I had to constantly be planning. We were provided a recommendation or direction. We planned for it. And then within 24 to 48 hours, it would change. So we'd have to replan. So doing all of that is just churn. And for the past two weeks, very little sleep, just trying to figure out what's best for our members. Um, and that's it. You know, we were literally trying to find the best case scenario for all our members so that we, um, I, I don't know what we expected. I mean, we all kind of guessed that we would go into full lockdown, but we, what we were trying to figure out was during that journey to full lockdown, what could we be doing? Because we don't want to just stop because then mm. people, again, don't have that sanctuary or that third place to call home. Um, well, what are you going to do then? You know, and, um, obviously what that means is financially we won't be able to sustain the club and it'll have to close. And that is um, obviously very devastating, mm. you know, having to think of that. So yeah, it's not been great. It's been pretty tough actually. Yeah. And I can see you talked about the lack of sleep and stuff like that. I noticed that you initially had, before we closed, you'd initially put out the small group classes, one to four people going through all the time to sort of schedule that all in. And I'd imagine there was, a heap of hours of planning and all that. And then it looks to me like before that even kicked off, everything changed, you had to close. So that whole time spent was kind of just like, well, didn't get to use any of those days at all. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so, um, oh, you know, everything that we put in place was literally thrown out the door, thrown, sorry, thrown out the window, wrong, wrong, wrong metaphors and analogies, but thrown out the window and, then we just had to try and find another way around it. Um, and it's not easy to sort of um, keep a brave face and, and try to find the best solution. You know, I think that's one of the good things about what Jiu-Jitsu taught me, um, resilience. But every time we did that, we'd have to start from scratch and try to replan. And it's not easy because you have to put systems in place. You have to um, uh, change schedules. You have to figure out who does what. Uh, so it was, yeah, it was interesting times. I think everyone has had a tough time. I've spoken to a few, a few of my friends who own their own clubs. And, uh, yeah, everyone's um, not sure what the future holds and how long we're going to be um, unable to uh, be a jiu-jitsu gym or jiu-jitsu club, um, how long that forced closure is going to be like. So everything's up in the air. Yeah, it's pretty interesting times. Uh, if you step back and look at it, you go, wow. When people say it's unprecedented, it's it's really unprecedented because nothing could have prepared us for this or prepared us better to put in plans in place to make it any better for anyone. It's it's been tough. Yeah. Um, so how do you mind if I ask how how has the response been since you sort of with um, keeping the memberships going and stuff like that? Have you had an overwhelming response from people at the club? Uh, look, we we understand that. Everyone is having a tough time. Um, you know, I really feel for, for those that have had partners or themselves um, be put in a 
situation where you know they've either been let go or made redundant um, because that business has just closed down, right? And mm. so there's nothing; they can't even keep them on. So, in, if in that case, then how can we expect someone to sustain a sports club um, in the times where this has happened? You know, we've been um, trying to obviously keep the community going. You know, with the Facebook group, um, uh, online exercises and hopefully when it starts lightening up like we can actually uh, provide some online learning which i want to keep going anyway because it's i think it's useful mm. um, but we 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 know everyone's having a hard time so you know those of those that can uh, assist the club they've they've put their hand up and, and tried to keep their membership going to try and sustain us during this time because obviously they're still outgoing um but those that can't we we understand and we don't want them to feel guilty or anything like that but the opposite we hope that everyone comes out of this okay and they get their jobs back and everything sort of the economy starts turning again so that they can come back and enjoy i mean jujitsu is supposed to be fun that's the key thing it's supposed we want to be there enjoying ourselves with jujitsu learning jujitsu hanging out with all the guys and girls there you know we're all mates it's it's a it's a that's what it's there for it's right? a community. That's, exactly. Mm. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I'm hopefully, um, I don't know how, I have no idea how long this will go on for, and I'm probably the worst person to be talking about COVID and trying to be intelligent about <laughs> it because the truth is I'm really not. Um, but, yeah. It's I don't a, think any of us know. Yeah. It's, I don't know. It's, it's difficult. A lot of people I know over in Sydney, they're having, it's a very similar sentiment coming. I've spoken to John, he's the exact same position. I spoke to another affiliate of his in um, Northern beaches in Sydney, exact same thing, same troubles. They've closed their gym. They, they're feeling the pinch just like you. And I could sense in the chat with him, the same kind of like, um, I can feel your emotion a little bit. Do you know what I'm saying? And I could sense that from him as well. So I think we're all kind of, yeah, yeah. The, as difficult as it is, the good thing is that we're all kind of in the same boat. So in, in that sense, we're all in it together. And I don't mean that in a bad way as if I go down, you go down, but in a kind of like, if we all rally, you know, hopefully we can all come out the other side. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. Like, um, as I mentioned, you know, I still work, um, a, um, not, not full time, but you know, four days a week, I still work at, at, at a, at a tech consulting job. And yes, it's got a little bit of flexibility, but all those flexible hours I put back into the club so I don't get paid. You know, it's for me, it's not business. It's actually personal. The club is my passion. Um, I've put in blood, sweat, tears, money into that to, to build it up, to um, sustain it. So I'm, I'm the same boat as everyone else. You know, I'm, I'm chipping in to make sure that the club can be sustained. Um, and because like I said, it's not business, it's personal. And for me, the three pillars of which I stand by um, is is really important to me. That's that's probably the most important thing um, to me for what um, I, I believe and for the club. Yeah. Mm, so, yeah, fingers crossed we all come out of it. Culture, community and people. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, I, did you have, so I just sort of, are we getting t towards the end of this, I would say. Um, do you have anything that you would like to say? So before, um, after that, I've got a couple of questions I want to ask you as well, just off the bat sort of things. Yeah. Um, I guess 
you know, to to all of, uh, you know, whoever's listening, whether they're members of Kaizen Lab Jitsu or not, um, you know, hang in there. Um, I know it's tough being, um, you know, doing social distancing and, and staying at home. I know it's tough hanging there. Um, there's definitely um, sunny days ahead of us. Um, we just have, I guess, to uh, suck it up for a little bit just to make sure that we can get past this. Um, try to try to keep connected somehow. And I know digital connection, like what we're doing through Zoom and all, it's not, it's not the same, but don't, isolate yourself any more than you have to. It's, it's, it's a physical distancing. It's not you going to solitary confinement. So make sure that you are talking to people, if you're feeling down, um, you know, not even depressed, you know, if you're feeling just even a little bit down, call up a mate, uh, call up someone, have a, have a, a FaceTime, Zoom, video conference call, or whatever, keep connected um, and, and hang in there. Don't turn to alcohol. Change it to something good, positive, you know, like change your diet for the better, get fit. Um, yeah, don't hit the bottle shops. <laughs> don't, don't do that. That's just going to make it worse. Um, exercise will always keep you healthy. Go out for a walk. Yeah, just just keep your head up, you know, and always ask. There's always people out there that will be willing to, to chat and, and talk you through things. Yeah, beautiful. Couldn't, said it, couldn't have said it better myself. Um, so to move on... <laughs> Um, sure. if I can just, just give you a couple of questions, feel, feel free to say as little or as much as you like, as you would like. And I'll also check my phone real quick. See if anyone's given me anything in our chat. Um, okay. So actually I've got a few questions and I will read out Dorothy's ones because I feel it's appropriate <laughs> from your wife, Dorothy. <laughs> why does he like dance studios so much? <laughs> I <laughs> know uh, this has been an ongoing joke because uh, the first place that we hired outside of the garage was at a ballet studio. So um, it was an, uh, it was a studio that they weren't using. They had like four studios and this one was just wasn't being used. Um, why dance studios? And now we're next to like Bobby's pole dancing. Um, it's just pure coincidence. Um, they just happen to be in places where have spaces where jiu-jitsu like gyms or clubs can fit right because they're you know large halls or um you know wide sort of open areas so uh there's probably synergies there but i haven't found any yet it's just happened to be coincidence at best okay well that was a complete and utter lie load of bullshit but we'll move on anyway uh, <laughs> at least with it, I'm, i've got an angle here obviously so forgive me <laughs> And I, and I know Dorothy enjoys it too, the shade that is. Um, so, f <laughs> so from Alec McPhee, McPhee, sorry, excuse me, Alec, uh, what is your biggest influence? He's got a couple of questions too. So biggest influence. Um, did he say what in? Is it um, like I'm guessing? I'll read out the whole question. It says his biggest influence, three pieces of advice for anyone on the journey and his great, greatest weakness that we can exploit. <laughs> so let's go maybe from a... <laughs> I, like, I like the last one, yeah. <laughs> that was interesting. Okay, I'm yet to right, find so any. My, I'm yet to find any. <laughs> so I can't tell my, you. My biggest influence would be, um, you know, obviously uh, my, my family would be my biggest influence. So my sis and uh, my wife 
and um, those two have been really, um, you know, influential in, in, in um, everything, uh, my personal life and, and, and scholastic and whatever. Um, because without their support over the years, um, I couldn't do half the stuff that I would be doing right now anyway. So I think that's a huge level of influence. Um, so, uh, uh, yeah, thanks, my sis Gwen and Dorothy. And then in terms of martial arts, though, um, influence would be um, my Kung Fu master. So he really taught me, um, not, not, it's not just skills, it's everything. So what strategy means, what, what being a martial artist is. Don't, um, he, I remember he gave me this one strong advice. Don't ever become a mercenary. Don't ever do martial arts for the money because it takes away your love of it. Um, if you don't rely on the money, you, you can train with whoever you want to train. You can um, do whatever you want with it because that is yours. You're not then a mercenary to other people's needs and wants. That was his biggest advice to me. And, you know, obviously he gave me heaps. He, he, he himself is a, he's a very successful business person, but also a grandmaster in martial arts as well. So if he can do it, he said, anyone can, right? Um, and so he, he really mentored me. And then after that, obviously, I've had, uh, you know, uh, awesome coaches, um, Troy, who, you know, rest in peace. Um, he's been such a huge influence in terms of teaching me what culture in a club is and should be like and, and how to build that, what, really, what culture really meant. So that, that's, uh, for me, what uh, influences I've had. Okay. Um, that's really sentimental. Well, I like it. Uh, so the second part of Alex's same question was three pieces of advice for anyone on the journey. And if I, if I say, how about I reword it and say it from the perspective of what are three things that you, you wish you knew that you know now that you wish you knew at the start? Cause I guess that's a journey thing, right? If you knew it earlier, it would be helpful. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Good point. Um, Listen to your coach. Don't think you know everything. <laughs> um, don't give up because it's very easy to give up. Um, and oh, I think those are the two biggest things that I wish if I had knew earlier. Um, but yeah, maybe a third one. Get a maintenance plan. You're not invincible. You're not going to be 20 forever. Right? So look after your body. Yeah, because if you don't, you'll, you'll have to stop at some point, right? And we don't want to stop training. Well, ideally, yeah. <laughs> and, okay, uh, he, so to his other question, so maybe if you could be honest with us, your biggest weakness. So what, what would you say would be the weakest part of your game or something that you feel like you need to improve the most? Oh, that's so many places in my game. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know, like as a, uh, as a practitioner, right? It's, I, I've got so many holes in my game that I'm trying to clean up. Um, it, it's, uh, geez, where do I start? Um, I hate being on the mount. Um, I'm not good at leg locks. Um, uh, my, my, my guard needs work. So, you know, people pass my guard all the time. Uh, man, it's just like the list keeps going. Where do I stop? 
I know the feeling. Like even even at my stage, it's like, oh, when you think about it, you're like, damn, I'm so bad. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? It's you're like, ne- are you ever satisfied <laughs> with anything? <laughs> no, I, I don't think it's possible, right? I don't think, like, if you ever ask, like, a musician, are you a perfect guitarist, drummer? Is there such thing? I mean, you're always looking to be better, but never mm. can you ever say that you are at the best of your ability. Mm. No, I don't think so. Yeah. It's just about I don't trying to be as, as efficient as possible. And that just, yeah, it gets the 1%. Yeah. And, it gets and, hard. And, and exactly. But, you know, if, it, if the question is coming from Alec, man, I don't want to be under Alec's mount. I don't want him to be on my back. Actually, I don't want him anywhere near. I don't want him to be in my guard. <laughs> I, don't even, I don't even want to roll with him. <laughs> <laughs> he's, 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 he's big. He's strong. He's, he's clued in. And uh, funny enough, yeah. like Alec actually um, trained at Submission Factory as well, like before I did. So I think we literally just missed each other. Mm, okay. Yeah. He's a great guy. Um, I have... One, one, thank you for that, Alec. I appreciate you um, taking the time to write those questions. So one last one that's here now is from Cody Steele. And it says, who is your favorite purple belt? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have any favorite purple belts just because they're scum of the earth. Um, you know, purple belts, you know, geez, I don't know. It's just not browns, right? But no, I'm just joking. There's no, mm. there's no favorite, say, because... Um, I don't know, as a coach, like, oh, no, sorry. I mean, as an athlete before, you're like, you, you are like always asking, oh man, who's coach's favorite, you know, who are they always going to get playtime with and, you know, court time and all this sort of stuff. But I think on the flip side, when you become a coach, you go, man, you just cannot be biased. You have to take everyone um, for what they're worth, you know, face value because, um, again, it's this whole thing of like, you shouldn't compare yourself to anyone else. Mm. And again, as a coach, I, I should never try to compare someone against someone else. The benchmarks are not realistic. I should always be judging the person on concepts um, and a few other uh, abilities on that person itself. So for example, like, um, would you ever expect a 60-year-old blue belt to have the same objectives as a 17 year old blue belt as they're going up towards purple belt mm. can they achieve the same things in exactly the same way maybe not. not physically right it's a, such a physical game so i think um it has to become more than that more than just a physical uh, so you can't bias and you can't compare yourself against it so cody no, I don't have a favorite purple belt. <laughs> Thanks, Cody, for putting that one in there. <laughs> I, I didn't, and to be honest with you, Cody, I didn't think for a second Brandon would turn around and say it was you. So, <laughs> all right, a couple, a couple from me. Um, if have you got time? Should, even ten more minutes? Yeah, 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 sure. Fire away. Okay, so uh, I've asked you already. Tips for beginners. We've done that. Um, what do you think was the biggest single challenge in your journey? Jeez, there's been so many challenges, but, um, well, even it doesn't guess, have to be the biggest, but something that sticks out yep. at least front of mind. Okay. What, one of the things was, 
um, I had stopped competing in BJJ when I was at Purple Belt. Um, and that was actually because there was a lot of politics back then. Um, and I just had enough. Uh, so BJJ back then, we had a slow influx. The, the community was changing. We had a lot of people coming in from overseas. Um, and the landscape was changing. There was also then a lot of politics. People obviously trying to mark their territories, a lot of, and I just had enough. Um, I had already started training in judo as a blue belt. I had already been doing judo and I said, enough's enough. Um, there's too much of this thug political mentality going on in BJJ at that time, which is quite sad because I competed in every single comp I could get my hands into from white belt all the way up to blues. And when I hit purple, I was like, no, I've just had enough. Um, so I put that aside and I actually competed in judo, in which were run way more professionally. The referees were in suits. They were unbiased. They even flew someone in from uh, Eastern States to judge a uh, referee. So there's, there were non-biased judges. Uh, all these things, it was just run really professionally. And I really enjoyed that side of things. And I thought, this suits me a lot better. This, this sort of mentality is what I want in a competition that I'm going to dedicate my heart and soul into. Um, you know, because preparing for a competition is not easy. It puts mm -hmm. a lot of strain on physical, nutrition, budget, your uh, home life, your social life. It, it puts pressure on everything. So um, what was difficult for me was then finding my love in BJJ again, because I was still training BJJ, but finding my love again to then want to go and go brown and black and, you know, actually like take my progression in BJJ. It was a, it was a conscious decision to go and, and, and try to progress myself in BJJ after being just, just had enough of all of this politics stuff. Um, and it wasn't a good community. You know, it wasn't like you were, supported by the wider BJJ community. There was nothing like that. Um, it wasn't a good place. Yeah. Mm. Whereas judo is very different. I found that very, very different. The mentality and culture was very different. Um, and same with wrestling. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so that leads me a little bit into the, my next question. I've got two more for you. Um, what do you, so this, I guess this is the position you're in where you made a conscious decision to, in, to invest your time in the jujitsu to get to your brown and to your black. Uh, but what what would you do if you're feeling stale or unmotivated? So perhaps, yeah, how did you get past that bridge? Um, because I practice a lot of different martial arts, um, I, I, think I felt when I hit a plateau in, like, say, one of them, like, I would um, turn to try and find new perspectives in my other martial arts. So I've been very lucky in my journey. I've had the chance to go overseas and train with weapons masters in the Philippines. Um, so stick, knife, um, and, you know, obviously Chinese martial arts. I was introduced to a lot of different styles um, and judo, freestyle wrestling. Uh, I, I've done a lot. And so I would, I was able to use the different arts to provide a different perspective, which gave me a fresh angle or fresh lens to turn myself and look at problems, which helped me to overcome plateaus. And um, I think from 
when I started jujitsu, I think I spent about two years each rank. I think that's reasonably quick. Um, yes, I put in a lot of time, but I think also how I spent my time looking at problems, I think, um, and problem solving, I think that's where it led me to my greatest, um, um, I guess, progressions. Mm. And so how, how do you generally go about that? If you're having problems, are you just sitting and thinking internally and visualizing it or are you feeling it on people? What, what are you looking for? Well, I guess it, it's, it's quite a, that's quite a broad question because the problems can manifest in different ways. Um, and so different problems require different uh, problem solving skills. So if sure. it is, um, you know, if you can give me an example, I could probably provide you with a way that I've overcome it. Yeah. Um, okay. Do you have any specific examples? Um, I'd say, well, how, so I might be, I might, let me, let me think from a person. Let me give, give me a minute. Let me think about my own jujitsu maybe. And I can ask it through that lens. Um, okay. Yeah. So, okay. So if you're trying to learn a new move, right. And you're not sure, maybe, maybe it's not the move. You have an understanding of a move. So let's say a sweep, let's just say a sweep from close guard the arm in sweep or something like that. It's something I've worked on recently. How would you go about solving that? Um, do, like, uh, I think I'm looking at it from the visualizing point of view. Do you, I'm not even sure how to ask it. To be honest uh, uh, okay. With you. Okay. So, so there's obviously different categories um, of issues, right? It could be, is it a mechanical issue? Like, can you perform the movement? Um, can it be performed then? If, if it's not mechanical, is it a timing issue? So is it inappropriate to perform the movement? So um, uh, a good example of if it's a timing issue, I actually learned that uh, from judo and weapons where there are actually ways to understand if a movement is appropriate at a certain space and time. And you only really get those timing problem solving skills i reckon from a stand-up art right which you can then uh use that to uh problem solve for bjj that's that's how i felt anyway um so timing issues um is usually you've got the mechanics but then you are either early or late in terms of your window of opportunity in performing that mechanic mm. right because if you're on time that is, you're in the window and mm. you've performed it. So um, is it a timing issue? So if it's not mechanical, if it's not timing, then is it a conceptual or flow understanding in terms of how it fits into your overall tactics or strategies? Um, so how to use it, the purpose of it, do you have an objective in using it? Um, a good example is when, we, so this year we started up a competition class. Now, previous years, I've never, I guess, felt a need for it um, because we aren't a competition specific school. We've just been very fortunate to have, I guess, people interested in competitions, people interested in self-defense. We've had a very um, broad range of interests in our club. Mm. So, but this year we started a competition class because people were interested in learning more about that not so much just for competition, but for their own understanding. And what competition class teaches you is about strategy, tactics, constraints, and utilization of these skills within that context. So if you put all that in a little box, um, every competition has 
it's a game and how do you um maximize your knowledge or usage usage of those rules to maximize your ability to perform so that's uh not a mechanical nor a timing issue but now it's more purpose what is the strategy tactic of uh, a sweep for example why would you use it when would you use it in your overall game mm. That's that's actually so. I think you've hit everything that I was asking for, even though I fumbled my questions. So I I apologize for that. <laughs> that was that was very detailed. Makes, makes <laughs> a lot okay. of sense. I hope that helped. No, it does because okay. then you, you can look at it from yeah, even conceptual timing mechanics. These are the things you need. People need to think about. And I think my issue was probably uh, more timing than um, mechanic, and that was okay. the problem. So they had well, we already discussed okay. this at the time, bringing the weight forward need to carry their weight, not have them sitting back. That was the issue that in that specific moment that we've, I don't know if okay. you recall that conversation. Uh, okay. And lastly, I'll say, uh, do you have any people that you followed throughout your journey? So from a BJJ perspective, um, Oh yeah. yeah definitely. Anyone else, but is there anyone do you like to look at? So, I mean, just to follow them. Yeah, um, what? My, my fondest memories of, Fighters that I really like to follow um, are uh, Mario Sperry and Marilo Bustamante. Um, they were the original top team. And um, I remember when, again, the mate that introduced us to um, BJJ, he actually had not only Gracie Jiu Jitsu, but then later on also had a couple more VHS tapes. Um, and one of, uh, one of the sets actually had, um, again, Mario Sperry and Marilla Bostamante, and they were showing their techniques, but they also went one level further and, and, and spoke a lot more about it um, on how they came up with the techniques and, and how it helps the game and how the game, you know, giving you a game plan basically. But um, I really loved it. Like I just went, wow, these guys are really cool. I like how they're thinking. Um, and then when they, you know, went to matches and fought, any chance I could follow them and watch them, um, and how they instructed, I really enjoyed it. Um, the others are um, uh, Marcelo Garcia. Um, I really enjoy watching him compete uh, and, and fight. Um, uh, I, can't, I probably can't pronounce this person's name very well. Um, Musumeki, Musu, Musumechi. Um, I'm not, my, you know, I'm not Michael, sure. Uh, let me, let me just take your time, pull up this, <laughs> just pull that up, please. Jamie, <laughs> sorry, I don't have anyone here. Pulling anything so it, it, me. It, it, Michael. So Michael Musumeki is an American BJJ. Uh, he's, he's only a lightweight. He's only a featherweight. Um, but let, hang on. If I, if I, if I put this, on this chat of for you you'll see are you typing it hola so i can't i can't pronounce his name very well uh musumechi musumeki yeah yep yep so i yeah, yeah i can't that. pronounce his name very well um so tell me a little bit but, about him uh yeah said a feather featherweight or so lightweight anyway. american fighter yeah just i just enjoy watching him um fight and move and and just his uh, just, just the way he, he competes really. Um, those, 
I guess those are the main um, main people. Uh, back back way when uh, Jason Scully as well uh, of the Grappler's Guide. I used to like watching him compete in gi. Um, uh, I Lucky Giles definitely a big fan of how his uh, teaching methodology. Um, him and Craig Jones and and what they've done specifically for their little tribe of um, fighters, right? It's it's mm. quite interesting. Um, yeah, those those are I guess the people that uh, I guess have uh, I, I follow I follow or are interested in. Yeah, yeah. I see. I, I don't really watch much UFC. Yeah, I don't really watch much UFC. Um, I watch a little bit here and there. I don't really follow anyone there, but more just like grapplers. Um, and then I've got uh, great coaches who are like ex-Olympians and stuff, which um, I got to train with. They were like my coaches. So it's not like big names that you guys would have heard of sure. potentially. Yeah. Understand. I like the um, Kaizen. Uh, Lachlan Giles is a fan favorite, I think, at Kaizen because he's, well, he's done a bunch of seminars with us and he's really, really good. So Yeah, I, I really enjoyed having him down um, and not just doing like a, two-hour seminar but like a training camp for us specifically you know he'll ask what i wanted to do for you guys uh, where i wanted to bring you guys up to like the plan and then he would take that plan and he would come up with his own um obviously training plan for the camp and i thought it's been amazing like it's been so much fun i wanted also to find someone that wasn't big like i had a couple of big guys in mind but he's I want to do something for the littler guys as well. And I think Lockie fits that to a T like perfect, right? The big guys learn stuff, but you, the, all the little guys get so much um, out of him as well. And even the women um, taking those techniques, man, everyone's, you know, ripping off leg locks and stuff like that. It's great. Mm, I, I remember when he came, the recent time he came it was three days, six hours each day. Right. And it's such, it was very affordable for uh, affordable. I think it was $85 per day. If you paid late, like I did, <laughs> maybe cheaper if you got the early bird. Um, but I had signed up. I remember signing up specifically only for the leg lock day. And it's, I mean, I could have got heaps of things out of everything else, but I knew that six hours of leg locks was going to be enough for me to chew on for a very long time. And I thought that anything more than that, my small brain would probably disregard or not hold on to any of it. So, but that was a, that was a yeah, um, mind blown. <laughs> oh yeah. Six hours d deep dive. I like how it was systematic. It was progressive uh, along the day. So everything you saw when you got to hour five to hour six, it was kind of like building on the previous knowledge that we'd attained earlier in the day. So you're kind of seeing the same systems like evolve and then take, you know, those little clusters you're talking about. We go down one path instead of the other, we can problem solve here and go there and, I mean, I've, you see guys like Ewan in the gym now and he's ro he's rolling very well at, from the leg locks and I think that was probably the first seed that got planted at that um, seminar, probably set him on his path and then obviously you've been teaching along the way too. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I think exactly. Like it's um, those sort of like training camps, um, I really love them because it works so well for any sport and, and it really injects a huge amount of this committed knowledge into athletes and just boost their skill like that's what they're good for um mm. uh, and lucky did it such a great job and we wanted to keep bringing him back obviously um you know it's not as easy anymore because he's just completely blown up now he's a big name and you know everyone around the world wants him which is what he was doing he was actually um he couldn't make it to our um usually we have him over on easter 
he was actually completely blown up and he was touring around the world when all this COVID stuff came in. And then he had to, I think, cut his trip short and, and stop. But, um, you know, everybody wants a piece of him now. Um, but we've, we've wanted, I've wanted him like to come and train, um, train us and teach us his way, uh, for, for years now. Um, uh, ever since I, I attended his one seminar, uh, years ago. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's great. He's just really, uh, detailed, um, and, uh, succinct in the way he teaches as well. He's a physio by trade. So he's really cool to talk to. He's a cool guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very true. All right, uh, Brandon, did you, so I'll, that's, I don't have any more questions for you. I'm happy to leave it at this uh, for now, if you are happy to as well. I know we've got, we're going to do some topics um, at a later date, talk about self-defense and whatever else, just talk about themes of things to do with martial arts, if you're interested. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, happy to, happy to. Yep. Thanks very much for having me on. And no worries at all, Brandon. Thank you very much. And I guess I'll uh, either see you online soon otherwise hopefully in person and back at the gym as soon as possible thanks man stay safe all right bye bye